This morning's scripture reading is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19 and 37 through 43. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are copies in the racks in front of you. Uh, today's passage can be found on pages 825 through 826. Uh, they will also be put on the screens uh, if you would like to read them there. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take the one in front of you as our gift to you. Uh, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about, or had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Picking up in 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he, had, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the word of the Lord. Swept up by a crowd, by just the excitement or the enthusiasm of a crowd. Maybe for you it was at a sporting event, a college football game. Uh, for some of you, maybe it was a concert of some kind, and you went and heard a band, and, and maybe you didn't like them before, but you liked them after. For, for others of you, uh, maybe it was something having to do with politics or some sort of a political rally, but there's an electricity or an enthusiasm about a crowd that is really uh, infectious and can have an impact on us. Uh, when I was a little boy, I remember the very first time I experienced this, um, I, my dad got tickets for us to go see uh, the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series, and so I it was the big red machine year, so 1976, 1977, and, and I remember going into the stadium with people everywhere and seeing the players down on the field and the lights and the music and the sound, and I became a Cincinnati Reds fan right then. And, and, and I had not necessarily been a Reds fan before, but something about being in that crowd uh, really, really inspired me. And then... Um, a few years later, living in Jacksonville, I had a friend who, who called and asked me if I wanted to go to uh, a concert down at the old Veterans Coliseum. This was before they built the new arena. They invited me to go down to this concert. And I said, well, who is it? And they told me, I'm like, well, I really don't like, I'm not a big country music fan, but, but I'll go with you. And so the, the group Alabama was playing it, down at the Coliseum. So I went, I went to this concert, and, and I left an Alabama fan uh, because... Because, uh, yeah, not Roll Tide, not that Alabama, the, the band, Alabama. So I, so I left with that kind of enthusiasm, that excitement. When Sherry and I first were married, we moved to Dallas, Texas. And I had not been a Dallas Cowboys fan, but you cannot live in Dallas-Fort Worth where they eat, sleep, and breathe. And the only news story is Dallas Cowboys football all the time. By the time we left, guess what I was watching? 
Dallas Cowboys football. Uh, it, it's just there's something about a crowd that has that impact on us. People know that. Everybody knows that. Politicians know that. I don't know if you saw the news story uh, that I saw recently uh, where one of the folks who were running for president, they've since dropped out of the campaign, it was discovered that they were hiring crowds for all their events. There is actually a company that you can go to and you can rent a crowd and the crowd will come to your event. Now, why do people do that? Why would anybody do that? Because there's, a, there's, there's something they understand about human nature. We like to think that other people think what we think. We like to be with people who think what we think. And there is a sense in which if I don't line up with all the people around me, I may even adjust what I think towards the crowd uh, so that I don't stand out, so that I'm not different from them. That, it's just part of who we are. So, so there's a, a dynamic in crowds that, that this, where this plays out. Um, it's called the crowd effect or, or, or the mob mentality. And, and it can have positive effects on us as people or it can have negative effects. So it could be that as you sense positive peer pressure and everybody's doing something, everybody's responding to some sort of natural disaster and it feels like, well, if I don't you know, text to give my $5, then I'm different from everybody else, so you text to give the $5. But there's also a negative side of it. And maybe you've seen this play down or you've read articles where there's a crowd of people around and there's an accident and everybody assumes somebody else called 911, but nobody actually did. So the crowd can affect you in positive ways and in negative ways. And, and here's why I want to talk about that today, because some of that was going on in the passage that Austin read for us earlier. There is an effect that, crowd, that crowds have on us, not just as it relates to the sports team we like or the concerts we go to, but even about what we believe and why we believe it and how we express what we believe. So the question is, do I believe what I believe because I actually believe it, or do I believe it because I'm with a bunch of other people who believe it? Do I worship God the way I worship God because it's an authentic expression of who I am and what I believe, or do I simply follow the pattern of all the people who are around me and the people who are influencing me and the people that I see? Now, this is a really important question for us. Because what we do each and every Sunday when we gather here involves, look around, a crowd of people. And it's important for us to know what impact, what effect does that have on what I believe and how I choose to worship. We started a new series last week that we're calling Poured Out. And we're looking at John chapter 12 and 13. And we're looking at it through the lens of worship. And what does it teach us about worship? So last week, we looked at worship on an individual level. We looked at some characters who were with Jesus in a particular setting. Uh, that We looked at Mary and her sister Martha and one of the disciples whose name was Judas. And we saw how what was reflected inside of their heart was also manifest in their approach to this one encounter that they had with Jesus. And it wasn't so much about what they were doing in particular as what was motivating their desire to love God on the inside. So this week I'd like for us to talk about this same idea of worship but on a little bit of a larger scale and how it relates to us as we gather here and do what we do each and every week. So, so last week we saw Jesus at this celebration. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead uh, Lazarus' family threw a big party uh, for Jesus, and there was a crowd that had assembled there. And now they were leaving this house, and they were going 
to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the Passover. So this crowd was going with him. But when they got to Jerusalem, there was an even bigger crowd there. There was a huge crowd. And when Jesus came in, word of Jesus and what he had done had already reached the city. And the city was in a frenzied state. Uh, I mean, they were already shouting Hosanna as Jesus is making his way there. And the crowd was massive. We know from the historian, Jewish historian Josephus, that about 30 years after Jesus, uh, Josephus records that the Passover celebration in Jerusalem had as many as 2.7 million people. Which means that if you go back 30 years, even if it was half as many people when Jesus entered Jerusalem, you're talking about more than a million people that were there. So Jesus is leaving with a crowd and he is going in and being received by an even bigger crowd. But why was this crowd there? What did they mean when they were proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Does their presence, did their presence in Jerusalem mean that they were really Jesus worshipers and Jesus followers? What was motivating them? Now, I want you to notice something that Austin read, the very last few verses that he read, that give us an insight into sort of the effects that a crowd have on individuals and what we believe. Look what it said, John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. The religious leaders who were really disturbed by Jesus... Uh, were divided, even among themselves. Not all the religious leaders uh, wanted to see Jesus executed. Some of them actually believed what Jesus was saying and what he was doing. Listen to what it said. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. We know two of them by name. We know Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees who believed. We also know another Pharisee by the name of Joseph of Arimathea who would give Jesus the tomb. So we know there were Pharisees who believed. Many of them believed in him, but, catch this, for fear of the Pharisees, They did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For, here comes the key, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, they were being influenced by the crowd of people that was surrounding them. So today, what I'd like for us to do, just as we think about this idea of worship and how we worship with other people in community, I want to tell you four truths about crowds that affect what we worship and how we worship. And all of these four truths come from this passage of Scripture that Austin read for us earlier. The first one is this. What I believe and how I behave tends to reflect the crowd to which I belong. What I believe and how I behave tends to reflect the crowd to which I belong. This is why your mama was always so concerned about the crowd that you ran around with when you were in school. Because the crowd that you hang around with has an influence. It has an impact on what you believe and how you behave. Now, some of this isn't just about the the crowd that we choose. Some of it has to do with the crowd that we're born into. We are all born into a crowd. That crowd may be big or small, but that crowd is called a family. And that family has a set of beliefs and a set of practices and a set of customs uh, that we adopt from the very earliest of our age. Sherry and I have four children, and uh, when our kids were born and we brought them into our home, uh, we we have taught them and, and instructed them in the Christian faith from the beginning. They didn't really have a choice about that. 
because they were born to Christian parents, and unfortunately, maybe unfortunately for them, their dad was a minister. So there was not a little choice. So this isn't a bad thing. It's just a thing. This is just the way it is. You were born into a particular family with a set of beliefs, with a set of customs, with a set of practices. They could be good. They could be bad. But that is, that is in fact what happens, that I believe and I behave. My, my beliefs and my behavior tend to be influenced by the people and the groups to which I belong. But it's not just your family. It's also the country into which you were born. I mean, have you, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you were born on a different continent, in a different culture, you would have very different beliefs from the ones you have right here, right now. People who were born in the Middle East or who were born in Africa or born in Asia, they are born into a culture that has a set of customs and beliefs, and we tend to adopt the customs and beliefs into which we are born. It even goes to where the schools, the schools you go to, the schools you attend, uh, the, the places where you work. All of these environments have an impact on what we believe and, what, and how we behave. But listen, the inverse of this is also true. Because while you can't control those things in terms of where you're born and the family you're born into, as you get older, you begin to choose the crowd that you hang out with. And so the inverse of this statement is also true, that I will tend to belong to the crowd that best reflects what I've already determined to believe. I will choose to belong to the crowd that best reflects what I've already determined to believe. This is why Republicans hang out with Republicans and Democrats hang out with Democrats. And when we're in an election year, you try real hard not to hang out with anybody who has a different political view. And if you do have to hang out with them, you just don't talk about it, right? We tend to migrate towards people who have the kind of beliefs that we have. Why do we do that? Why why do we tend to do that? We find the crowd that validates what we've decided to be true. Because our belief is easier to maintain in a community that shares our belief system. Because what does that community do? That community will filter out everything that doesn't fit with what we believe. And so if I hang out with people who believe what I believe uh, from a political standpoint or who believe what I believe from a religious standpoint, then that crowd will serve as a filter. Now, listen, again, that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing thing. Okay? It's just a true thing. And so it's important for us to recognize and understand the, the, the power and the influence that a group of people can have on us. And, and here's why that is so important. Because our crowd can be blind to certain things. They can completely ignore certain facts. Let me give you a great example uh, of this. And, and it, it sort of crosses lines politically and religiously so I can make everybody mad. Okay, So the, the, just the, the way this works is uh, if you think back in the South... Not too long ago to an era where segregation was the law of the land and then back before that when slavery was the law of the land, people who were surrounded by other people who had been taught that for generations and generations didn't see anything wrong with that. And our country had a big, big uh, war in the, first case, in the first place and a movement in the second place that tried to change the way people thought. Now, were the people who, who practiced segregation all bad people because they practiced segregation? Or were they just people who were misguided and misdirected? I, I'm not going to answer that question for you, but here's the thing. They were a part of a crowd that filtered out what they believed and what they thought. And as long as they stayed in that crowd, they continued to be told the same things. 
Let me give you, let me give you just a, a, a reality about that. In our modern day, Bill Bishop, who is sort of a, a sociologist and psychologist, he wrote a book called The Big Sort. And, and he, this is what he said. Like-minded groups squelch dissent, grow more extreme in their thinking, and ignore evidence that their positions are wrong. As a result, we now live in a giant feedback loop. Hearing our own thoughts about what's right and wrong bounced back to us by the television shows we watch, the newspapers and books we read, the blogs we visit online, the sermons we hear, and the neighborhoods we live in. Because if I surround my people, myself with people who think like I think all the time, then I never have to question what I believe and why I choose to believe it. So this is why this is true and important for you. If you were raised a Christian... You probably think you are a Christian. If you were not raised a Christian, you were not raised by Christian parents, then you will probably not believe the same things that Christians believe. But here's what you need to know, and here's what I need to know, whether it has to do with our faith, our religion, our politics, our society as a whole. Truth is not subject to the crowd that we are in. Democracy is great. But truth is not determined by what gets the most votes. Something is either true because it's true or it's false. It has nothing to do with whether my crowd in majority believes it or whether I believe it or whether anyone believes it. If you go back in our world, back four or five hundred years, very few people believed that the world was round. They believed it was flat. But the fact that the majority of the people on planet Earth believe the world was flat did not make that true. Democracy, as good as it is, I love democracy, and I'm going to practice my right to vote when I get the opportunity, but democracy does not determine truth. The crowd I'm in does not determine what is actually true. Because here's why this is important for you. Whatever your faith background is, you need to understand that what you believe was influenced by a crowd of people by the crowd you were born into, the culture you were brought into, but the claims of Christianity are rooted in history. And we have to determine, do we believe that those things actually happened, those events happened or not? And it doesn't matter what our crowd, what our culture, what our family believes about those things. And here, that leads me to the third point about the crowd from this passage. Just because the crowd is growing does not mean the truth is flowing. I very rarely come up with rhymes, guys, so I'm just... Kind of proud of that one. I'm not, I'm not that preacher who everything rhymes all the time. Just because the crowd is growing does not mean the truth is flowing. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's Passover. There's a huge crowd there, probably over a million people. But it's important for us to ask the question, what did those people actually believe? What was happening was the crowd effect was coming into play. They, 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 but what was motivating that? What was behind that? There's a really important clue for us that we might miss. And, and quite honestly, our religious traditions, I think, have almost inoculated us to this very important clue. When Jesus came into Jerusalem and the crowd was around, they were waving what? Palm branches, right? Palm branches. And so we call that Sunday, we, we even have a Sunday that we call Palm Sunday. But have you ever asked yourself, why were they waving palm branches? Because it was Passover, and there is no evidence that the palm branch had anything to do with the Jewish tradition of celebrating Passover. It's not part of it. But there is a Jewish holiday in which palm branches do play an important part. We know it today as Hanukkah. 
And Hanukkah is a celebration that happened in the intertestamental period, that 400 years of silence in between the Old and the New Testament. There was a period of time in which Jerusalem had been overrun by pagans. They had come in, they had taken over the city, they had taken over the temple, and they were offering sacrifices to their pagan gods in the temple. And the Jewish people were clearly upset that they had been defeated militarily, their temple was being violated with these pagan rituals, and there arose up a Messiah in in the military sense, a savior whose name was Judas Maccabeus. And in the year 164 B.C., so this is about 130 years before uh, Jesus. So if, in our perspective, if you think of it, it would almost be like from our time back to the Civil War. Not ancient history, not recent history, but somewhere in the middle. So, so this Judas Maccabeus had gone into the temple. He had defeated the pagan invaders and he had cast them out of the temple and they cleansed the temple and they reestablished worship in the temple according to the Jewish laws. And the celebration for that event is what we know as today is Hanukkah. And the people in the crowd waved palm branches for Judas Maccabeus because he was their military conqueror who had come in to deliver them. Now, fast forward. 130 years later, word is beginning to get out. The Jews are once again being oppressed by another invading army. This time, it's the Roman government, the most powerful army the world has ever known. They, they, they basically dominate the Jewish nation. They dominate Jerusalem. There's word out there that there is one who is the Messiah, that he has come to deliver his people, that he's given sight to the blind, he's made the lame to walk, and now he's even raised a dead man back to life. And the crowd is electric. But what is it they're expecting Jesus to do? They are expecting Jesus to come in as a military conqueror and to kick out the Romans. How do we know that? Because they are waving palm branches. This is almost like waving a flag, a rebel flag saying, hey, we are going to rise up, Jesus. We are with you, Jesus. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He has come to conquer. He has come to deliver us. And the crowd was entirely wrong. They did not gather in the streets of Jerusalem to worship the Son of God, the suffering servant, who would come and be crucified by the Roman government. And because of his death, their sins could be forgiven. That's not the kind of Messiah that they had come to worship. They had come to worship a military conqueror. And look what, the, look what the, uh, the Pharisees said in John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole city of Jerusalem was proclaiming. Why were the Pharisees so upset? Because they were afraid that Jesus was going to ignite a rebellion and that the Romans would come in and take away the little bit of authority that they had been allowed to keep. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why the crowd was shouting, Hosanna. But they were both wrong. Because within five days, that same crowd of people would turn 180 degrees on Jesus. And when he was on trial before Pilate, and they were given the option of one Jewish prisoner to be released, they would shout, give us Barabbas. And when Pilate said, what should we do with Jesus? They said, crucify him. Crucify him. How does the crowd go from on Sunday saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to within six days saying, crucify him, 
crucify him, crucify him. Listen to what it says in Mark 15, 11 through 15. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd. Did you catch that? What was the chief priest doing? He was doing the same thing that that former presidential candidate was doing. He was going and he was renting a crowd of people to influence the masses. He stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the what? The crowd released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And Jesus, we know as Lord and Savior, not because the crowd of people shouted Hosanna on Sunday. We know that that crowd would be diminished, and by Friday they'd be shouting crucify him but there was a remnant of believers by the time jesus made it to the cross there were a handful fewer than five of his followers were still there the crowd is not always right the crowd does not determine what is true god will often work through a remnant of people who are fully committed fully poured out and truly worshiping god look at it through the entire old testament when, when God decided to press the reset button on the earth, he found Noah, one family, and through that remnant, he saved humanity. It, when, when man had gone corrupt again on another occasion, he found one man and a wife, an older couple, Abraham and Sarah, who were already past childbearing years. He said, I can work with this. I can work with this, with this remnant. When the children of Israel during the Exodus, were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And when they had disobeyed God and they had abandoned God, God said, you know what? I don't need any of you. I will, only the people who are under 40 are going to enter the promised land. God works through the remnant. Gideon, one of the judges, was going to fight the Midianites. And he had 22,000 soldiers. And God said, it's too many. He cut it down to 10,000 and finally cut it down to 300 because God is glorified through the remnant of believers, not necessarily the mass in the crowd. When, when Israel was carried into exile, there were just a few people who truly believed what God had said through the prophet, the remnant of people that stood. And then in John chapter 6, we've already seen this in the ministry of Jesus. At the high point of Jesus' ministry, he had more people following them than ever before. And as they're gathered around, he told the crowd, listen, unless you're willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And what happened? Most of the crowd left him that day. Because the crowd does not necessarily reflect what is true in the heart of the individuals. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Listen to me, teenagers, high school students, middle school students. You are, you are in a crowd of people all the time, and what they define as right may not be right just because the majority of them think it and believe it. And you can be led down that wide path to destruction because oftentimes what is right is best reflected in the remnant of people around you who are truly committed and love the Lord. Adults, that doesn't just apply to teenagers. Just because the mass of society believes something does not mean it's actually true. And it's dangerous when we ourselves base our beliefs, even our religious beliefs, because the crowd has dictated our, our, dictated our belief rather than what we actually believe in our heart. That's what leads me to the fourth truth that we need to know about crowds. The emotion of the crowd cannot substitute for the devotion of your heart. There is no substitute. 
That's how a crowd of people who are just swept up in the emotion of Hosanna with bad and false information end up shouting, crucify him, just a few days later. And let me tell you something. If you come week after week after week after week and you surround yourself with religious people and religious teachings, but you have never determined what you actually believe for yourself, you just sort of go with the crowd, you, my friend, can be just like them. And on Sunday, you can be standing here with us singing Hosanna, and by Friday, your actions are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because the emotion of the crowd is no substitute for the devotion of the heart. Look what it said in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and trees and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Look down at verse 37 in the same chapter. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The crowd can say one thing and the individual can believe something entirely different. This, this may explain for some of you, you know, the impact that you have, uh, a religious experience that was just swept up in emotion, but didn't necessarily reflect the truth of what was going on in your heart. Maybe, maybe you've had the experience, you've been to a big conference of some kind, and you feel electrified, you feel so charged up, and then by Monday, you know, you're just back to living the same way. Students, you go to camp this summer, and it'll be awesome, but by the first day of school, just four or five weeks later, you don't feel any different, because the, the emotion of the crowd is no substitute for the devotion of your heart. And you can put yourself in a crowd that proclaims Hosanna, but unless in your heart you are yielded to God, it will have no lasting impact or difference, make no difference on you. This is why the prophet Isaiah said, listen to these words. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 29, 13, these people, he's speaking the voice in the voice of God right now. These people come near me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. They're being influenced by a crowd. They're being influenced by the emotion of a crowd, by the size of a crowd. But that God says, but look, I'm looking at the heart of every single one of you. I'm looking inside, and I'm looking for the devotion of the individual heart. Let me ask you a question. If everybody who were here today in this room Everybody who were here today in this room had a mirror image, had an exact replica of your heart. What would our corporate worship experience be like today? What would that be like? If everybody believed what you believed and everybody had the level of passion and emotion that you have, how would that impact the whole entire group? Is your heart near to God or is it just your mouth? Is your heart devoted to God or is it just the things that cross your lips? Is your worship based on deeply held beliefs and convictions or are they simply based on human traditions that are a part of your culture, a part of your family, a part of your heritage, but do in no way reflect the reality of what's going on inside of your heart? Listen, this is so important. Because it would be easy for us to get swept up ourselves every week in a crowd. And totally miss the message of the gospel, which is speaking to each and every individual heart. The question is, what do you believe? Who are you worshiping and why? You have to determine what or who you truly worship and why. Am I simply following a crowd and worshiping the American dream? 
Because, come on, let's face it, many times 21st century church and the American dream look an awful lot alike. If I'm just good enough and I just show up enough and I love the Lord enough, then, then, then I'll always have the resources I need. I'll have the house I want to live in, drive the car I want to drive. It's the health, health, wealth gospel, which is no gospel at all. What am I really believing? Am I just following along with a political ideology? Am I pursuing wealth? Am I pursuing popularity, power, or influence? And if I say I have chosen to worship God, have I made that personal choice? Or am I simply blindly following a religious crowd without any personal commitment? I want to read you a quote uh, from the novelist David Foster Wallace. Um, He was, by many accounts, destined to be one of the greatest authors um, in our current modern age He committed suicide in 2008, and shortly before his suicide, I want to read you the words that he said about worship. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being smart, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. Now, this is a man who was raised by atheist parents. And what is he saying? He is saying that the human heart is set on default to worship something. And here's what you need to know. What you worship may be being determined by the crowd and the culture in which you've placed yourself. And that may be good, it may be bad, but here's what you need to understand. God is inviting you, based on the truth of his word, to worship him fully. And to know that by worshiping him fully, you will be set free from the allure and the trap of everything else that will, according to Wallace's words, eat you alive but it is determined based on what is true not on what the majority of the people around you are worshiping determine if your faith is based on what you believe or simply what the crowd has proclaimed now this morning as we come to a time of commitment um, i I want to we're going to do something a little bit different today because i recognize that the power of an invitation is that i can ask you to stand and sing a song And based on the crowd and the emotion of the crowd, we can leverage that, right? Now, we would say as believers, we leverage that for what is true. But it's it's the same nonetheless. So so here's what we're going to do today, a little different. Um, Scott's going to play, and we're going to put some passages of Scripture uh, up on the screen for you to read. You can sit. You can stand. um, but, But here's what I want you to do. I want you to reflect in your heart. And there are two groups I want you to reflect on. One, if you're here today and you would say, I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian, Can I just ask you why you're not? Have you ever thought why you're not? Maybe you would say, you know, I I don't like Christians. Hey, there are a lot of Christians I don't like. It's okay. (laughs) That does not disqualify you. (laughs) But are you 
are you basing are you basing the fact that you've chosen not to be a Christ follower simply because you were born in a particular culture or to a particular family or you went to a particular school or lived in a particular region of the country? Or have you really explored the claims of Christianity to say, regardless of what anybody else has chosen to, to believe, is it true? Is it true? For those of you who are here, and it's probably the majority of us, you say, no, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Here's what, here's what you need to know. This idea of the influence of the crowd cuts both ways. Even if the crowd is pointing you towards what is true, the emotion of the crowd does not substitute for the devotion of your own heart. Is this something that you would say in your own heart? No, I believe this. Should everybody else walk out of this building next week and I be the only one to show up, I will worship God because of what Christ has done for me. Because my devotion is not based on the emotion of the crowd. It's based on the convictions of my heart. So as Scott plays, as we have this time of reflection, I just invite you. I will voice a prayer for us and then I'll be quiet. And I just want to invite you to take a few minutes. And I want you to look through the crowd, all the mass and the sea of people. And I want you to find your own heart. I want you to look past the emotion of other people and I want you to look at the devotion of your own heart. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I, am I, fully committed, fully poured out in my love for God through my faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, to pause and to reflect, to set ourselves apart from the mass of people that are gathered here today, and to know, Lord, that in that crowd of people on Palm Sunday, there were people who truly did believe When they sang Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were were poured out. Mary and John and Martha, there were those who were there who believed it. But there were others standing right next to him saying the exact same words. But Father, they were saying those words based on something that wasn't true, wasn't right. And by the end of the week, it would all be sorted out. And Lord, we're here today, and we have sung those very words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And while it may not be that that would be sorted out by this Friday, there will come a day when it will be sorted out. And you will look through the crowd, and you will look right at my heart. Lord, may the devotion of my heart, may the devotion of my life be an expression of my love for you that stands apart from everybody else. And Father, I pray for those who are here today that you would give us just this time to reflect on the devotion of each of our hearts. For those who are here who may not have followed you as their Savior, maybe today would be the day. For others of us, Lord, maybe we would realize my faith and my worship has been far more influenced by the crowd than it has by the true nature of my love for you. Maybe we'd we'd repent of that But Holy Spirit, we invite you in this time to work inside each of our lives however you would find appropriate.